Hi, welcome to the Mama Advocate Podcast. This is a safe place for adoptive and special needs mamas to feel less alone and find community amidst their unconventional journeys. Here, you're going to find authentic conversations from me and my guest who are parenting fully in the weeds with you. Our goal is to empower and encourage you to be the best mama you can be as you advocate for your people. Hello, guys. I'm really excited to have Dr. McBool with us today. He might also be known as my hero because he has allowed us to sleep through the night. And <laughs> I tell him that all the time with how much I love him and how how brilliant I think he is. Um, so I'm really excited that he's coming on today and sharing with us a little bit about sleep because this is his kind of, this is his specialty. And so, um, yeah, Dr. Mabel, can you kind of introduce yourself and tell us about why you're an expert on sleep? Hi, I'm uh, Mohsen Makbul. And I'm a pediatric neurologist and a sleep physician. I did my training in peds neurology and sleep medicine. And I started practicing pediatric sleep medicine when it actually didn't exist all those years ago. So I developed this niche uh, training. And now, as of recent, there is a fellowship program for sleep medicine as of two years ago, I think. But I started um, kind of a decade before that. So I kind of developed... um, my own area in within pediatric neurology uh, with sleep because it is strongly intertwined with neurology and brain development. So I had a better understanding, I think, of where it may be coming from, it meaning sleep problems, and maybe how to uh, help with that. So that's how it all started. I love that. And then when you were doing, when you were studying for this, you informed me that you worked in an orphanage and studied over there. Can you tell us about that? I see. That's that's a study, actually, that I participated in. Uh, I was part of a group of neuroscientists and uh, neuroradiologists. It was spearheaded by my mentor, Dr. Chugani. Uh, we were studying the effects on brain development in children who were adopted from Romanian orphans. So what we did is uh, is a technique in uh, radiology known as uh, diffusion tensor imaging, DTI, in which you can actually, besides seeing the finer structures of the brain, you can see how different parts of the brain are connected to each other. Uh, what MRI gives us is a good picture of brain structure, which is normal in most children, even with uh, profound developmental delays, including autism. But when you do a finer study of brain imaging and look at how these parts of the brain may be connected, that's where you find uh, some abnormalities. So what we did is we compared, uh, I think, seven children who were adopted from there, um, anywhere from six months of age and forward onwards, and what we found was uh, quite profound. Actually, I was the one, I was the uh, head of the uh, the group. I used to do all the image rendering and analysis of the, the MRIs. And first couple of patients, I, I thought the image was faulty. So I should get a different disc or burn it again or run it again. We ran again. I had it done by my supervisor. And we found the same findings, uh, that there were parts of brain in children, uh, Romanian orphans uh, who were adopted later on, that were severely underdeveloped 
to a point where we couldn't even find those pathways. One pathway specifically we found is called uncinate fasciculus. Uh, uncinate uh, is Latin word for a hook. It's a hook-shaped white fiber tract that if you look from the side, it runs from the frontal lobe and it hooks into the temporal lobe. So it's a connection between frontal and temporal lobes of the brain. Uh, its functions include to connect the functions of these two parts, which have to do with uh, memory, emotional regulation, emotional memory, uh, to some extent, mood regulation, how a person responds to external stimuli, changes in their environment. And that part, the encinate fasciculus, was almost inexistent in three children. And in four, it was very, what we call this dysmorphic, meaning it's there, but we know it's very abnormal. So it didn't develop. The common denominator amongst all those children was they were uh, socially and emotionally deprived for uh, various uh, durations of time. And the duration of time for which they were emotionally deprived correlated with the severity of their MRI abnormality. So... That was the uh, paper that I was part of. But if you expand uh, on those children who were, it all started in, I think, 1990s, where there was a major political shift in Romania, after which a lot of children who were being kept in these orphanages, which were governed by one person, there will be one nurse who would just go there to feed them. And otherwise, the child would be in their crib or in their room by themselves, no one to interact with, no one to even, not even other children. And these babies, there are videotapes of these babies just staring into their hand because that was the only thing they could actually interact with. Uh, it was a very sad state of affairs. So when these children were adopted uh, into the West, including many countries in the Europe uh, in England, England has a whole branch uh, of research on these children, and many of them were adopted in the United States. And where I was at the time was Detroit, and there's a uh, population of these children who were adopted uh, in that region. That's the number of children that I studied. But the other scientists all around the world who studied this group of children found that these children had a hard time making meaningful connections with their caregivers. There was this another study in which they tried to compare how child's brain react to the images of their caregivers versus strangers, because in typically developing children, you would see that children's uh, in the amygdala, the anxiety center of the brain, it calms down naturally if they look the face, look at the face of their mom or their dad or a familiar one. And when they see the face of a stranger, that area lights up because it's a fear, fight, and flight area. Uh, the children who were uh, these from these orphanages of Romania, there was no right and left difference or there was no difference between a stranger or a caregiver. So they would be very friendly with strangers. They would just go and hug strangers and they would just make a bond with a um, person on the street. That was a 
clinical finding way before the study was done. So the study proved that it's just how their brain reacts to different stimuli. It's just different, mostly because it's wired differently. So that only put emphasis on the social and emotional need of a baby. Even before they start talking or they start expressing it, just a passive, just a basic need of the child. Um, so that's what the uh, the only confounder was in the whole study. It's fascinating. I kind of want you to order one of those for my kids. One of those, one of those scans. We need to do that and check it out in this big study. Have there been other pieces of it besides these children from Romanian orphanage? Or has it all been, I'm curious about like drug and alcohol exposure. Does that I also see. have you seen it or? Gotcha. Gotcha. I see. So you, you're asking if besides social and emotional deprivation, there are other factors that can affect brain development. Oh, absolutely. These are very, very old studies. That unfortunately is way more common than social emotional deprivation, which is not as uncommon as we think it is. Even now, to date, in the United States, there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of children who are considered socially and emotionally deprived. So that's a very subliminal factor. However, the effects of uh, exposure to alcohol or Specific drugs have been studied in detail, not only by clinical studies, but also with neuroimaging. Um, we also actually described a baby who had this rare condition known as brainstem disconnection syndrome, in which the connection between brain and spinal cord is through a small part of the brain known as brainstem. That's where vital functions of the brain are located. In a baby whose mom was exposed to alcohol before baby's birth, so AKA fetal alcohol syndrome, it was the extreme presentation of it in the form of fetal brainstem disconnection syndrome. So brain and spinal cord are not connected. So the baby was uh, paralyzed below neck. So that's one extreme example of it, but various degrees in various um, parts of the brain can be affected. It's all very dose dependent. And also in which part of pregnancy or what trimester and to what extent the baby or the fetus was exposed to these drugs or chemicals. So yes, uh, it's a very messy area, very messy uh, situation, but Common denominator is abnormal brain development, abnormal brain connectivity. And that used to be one of my areas of uh, research, brain connectivity and brain structure and metabolism in various conditions. So you're right. It's not just social emotional deprivation, which many times goes unnoticed. There's no measure for it. But the things that we can measure, like how much alcohol, how much of an illicit substance was consumed before the baby was born. Those are more measurable uh, factors rather than social emotional deprivation. Um, I'm really, I may have so many questions for you. 
because I know this is an area that so many of my listeners struggle with with their kiddos. I'm I'm kind of curious about how that trauma or neurodiverse brain, like what are the differences in the needs for sleep there? Do they, is their need the same as a neurotypical person? I see. So the relationship between brain development and sleep is bidirectional, meaning not only sleep is a function of brain, a typically developing brain is going to go through typical sleep stages and evolution and development of sleep. That way, sleep is actually a developmental milestone. Just like the baby starts to sit at six months or stand at a year or starts to walk around 12 to 14 months, et cetera, et cetera, with some variability. Same way, sleep goes through developmental milestones in a typically developing child. So if brain hasn't gone through or is not going through typical stages of development, you would also expect, besides other developmental delays, a delay in evolution of sleep. Yes, just like sleep needs to be generated by the brain, sleep is needed by the brain to develop. Several processes of brain development occur only in sleep. They have to do with memory, memory consolidation, motor memory, um, synaptic pruning, meaning elimination of certain memories is part of or function of REM sleep. It's called selective unlearning. People or children who are deprived of REM sleep, they fail to almost, you can call it, delete certain memories. And over time, they accumulate these negative emotions, thoughts, and memories that present with either anxiety or depression. So sleep ends up being a function of the brain and a function for the brain. So in this process, if as a physician, I can help a child get a better sleep at night, I think I'll be helping with not only the quality of life, but also in the bigger picture, to some extent, the steepness of the curve of their development. That's what I have found so far has been my observation. I don't think there's been a longitudinal study or a long-term study. It's something that I guess I should study and present, which we are in the process of. Um, There's a study going on right now, looking at the quality of sleep and impact of that on the quality of life. But these are children who are currently on autism spectrum and are being treated with uh, medical cannabis. So that's a study that is uh, ongoing. Uh, We are presenting part of that study next month in Canada at the Child Neurology Society. One of my students from UTD is presenting that study. And across the board, a huge impact on not only quality of life, anxiety, but also a improvement in quality of sleep, ability to fall asleep and stay asleep through the night.
and this is over a six-month period. So you can extrapolate this over a long term. So far, uh, they've been doing okay. We haven't had any dropouts from the study. So, so far, so good. So fascinating. Yeah, so you've um, given us a script for that for Andrew, and it has helped his mood tremendously. And so I know that probably it's a leery topic for some, but I, I've seen huge differences in his mood and that being stabilized. And so I'm really grateful for that. Absolutely. Hey, let's take a quick break. Mama, I know that you are doing a great job, but maybe there's something you've been neglecting, like yourself or your marriage, the rest of your family or the systems in your home. Or maybe you're just ready for a change, but you don't know where to start. That's where we come in. Mama Systems can help you put systems in place so that your family is more organized, more peaceful, and more balanced. And so that you feel like you can get everything done that you need to get done during the day. We'll help make sure that you have a plan to advocate for your child in school and in the community, that you take care of yourself, your marriage, and the rest of your family, and that you have systems in place to help build teamwork mentality in your home and make daily life more manageable. All of this is doable and you deserve it, Mama. Check out mamasystems.net today. All right, back to our show. Um, okay, so I know that I've heard different moms talk about their kids like not sleeping for days on end. What in the world? I don't have a category for that because... I love sleep so much. What is going on with the brain whenever it's just refusing to sleep? I see. So I will I will divide this category. Technically, we would call it insomnia, which is a simple term to say can't sleep. But practically speaking, there can be many reasons. The most common reason that I see in my clinic is a physiological delay in their natural sleep time. So just as I was saying, sleep as a developmental milestone, same way, the ability to stay awake during the day is also a developmental milestone. A child who is five to six years old, if they are sleeping between 7.30 and 8, that has been the case for the past four years or so, and now the child is developing and they're turning six or seven or eight, their sleep time is going to get delayed because their ability to stay awake during the day is flourishing. It's a good sign. It's a good sign of a development, but it's a it's a major change in their lifestyle. A child who used to sleep at 7.30 or eight is now up till nine, and that is many times perceived as insomnia. But if you look at it from a physiological point of view, it is just the way it is supposed to be. At this, in this situation, obviously, we try to make sure that we are following the principles of good sleep hygiene, which is uh, stay away from electronics for at least two to three hours before bedtime, do nothing in the bed but sleep, no homework, no phone, no gadgets, and some light exercise in the evening, even though if it's for 15, 20 minutes, even though it's just a brisk walk around the block, something of that nature, no heavy meals within three hours of bedtime. 
and no caffeine within 10 hours. For children, some studies say absolutely no caffeine. So avoid caffeine. Make sure that the snacks that they're taking don't have MSG in it. MSG it happens to be a stimulant. Hmm. And there are no other reasons for the child to be up at night. They don't have symptoms of restless leg syndrome, which is creepy, crawly feelings in their legs and a tendency to rub on their legs or massage them or constantly toss and turn. And there's no history of uh, skin conditions making a child uncomfortable like eczema, making them itchy and keeping them up at night. So, and reflux, making sure they don't have reflux, make sure they don't take any bubbly liquids in the evening, no, no, nothing effervescent because it causes reflux. So once you exclude everything, it's a detective game mm -hmm. that's keeping a child up at night, then this is just natural and physiological. In these situations, my advice to all my patients who come in with this type of situation is to determine what their child's natural sleep time is. And do not start the nighttime routine of going to bed until 30 minutes before that time. So if a child naturally sleeps at, let's say, 9, don't send them to bed until 8.30. And before 8.30, maybe engage with that child without screens, without some, anything, any light-emitting toy. And that should be a normal or a healthy routine for the evening. Also in the list of things that might be keeping a child awake would be presence of anxiety, presence of depression, presence of other neuropsychiatric conditions. Because in that case, it'll be a different diagnosis. It would not just be a natural delay. It would be a delay exacerbated by their primary condition. That, that These things are called secondary insomnias. Secondary insomnia is... A person has something else, and it is leading to a delayed sleep time. Most commonly, these are anxiety, depression, stress, ADHD, psychosomatic issues, and so forth. So treating those underlying causes ends up being the first line of the management. And treating them doesn't mean medications. Treating them means start with understanding how severe they are, starting with play therapy, starting with relaxation exercises and even yoga and um, biofeedback. And if all of these things have been done and tried for a good four to six months, and even the therapists who are working with these children, they tell you that we have tried everything and this, this is not going away, that would be a good setup to uh, discuss medications for those underlying conditions. But as for far as delayed sleep phase or a natural delay in sleep goes, it doesn't require any medication. If we are giving children melatonin to keep their bedtime at 8.30 when it's naturally supposed to be 9.30, we are just uh, forcing them to stay in a jet-lagged situation, not the healthiest thing. And if you want to know what your child's natural sleep time is, um, with exception of teenagers, by the way, younger children, I'm talking about younger than 10-year-olds, is look at their sleep time during summer. In summer, generally, children 
are running a little late, sometimes two or three hours later than their school routine. So every child has to go through jet lag when the school starts. And that's where I see a surge of sleep patients in the clinic. And many of them are, I think jet lag is the best way to describe them. So in those situations, for the first six to eight weeks of school, melatonin is okay, but not on a perpetual basis. Only for six to eight weeks to adjust their biological clock. Once it's adjusted, there's no more role for melatonin and it should be discontinued. If the child continues to have difficulty sleeping at night past that point, that's where we need to consider things like stress, anxiety, adjustment to the school routine, new routine, anything else that might be affecting uh, the child in their lifestyle or in their life or their emotional life. These are the things that need to be considered uh, in, a, in a general sense. Um, there are a list of medical conditions, which again, when I, by the time children end up in my sleep clinic, they have already tried all the natural remedies, including melatonin and sometimes even Benadryl, which is not recommended. It's a medication. Naturally, a child should not be needing a medication for something as natural as sleep. If sleep is still a problem, maybe sleep is not the problem. Something else is, and sleep is just a comorbid condition or a collateral. So these are the kind of questions that need to be asked when things are not responding to general remedies. In teenagers, however, it's a different story because now past 12, 13 years of age, the arousal system of the brain has developed so much that it is able to stay awake till midnight and sometimes even past midnight. That's all right during summertime. This is why summer is the happiest time for a typical teenager. But once the school starts, teenagers are the ones who are struck with this school lag or school jet lag, whatever you want to call it, the most, because they are the ones who have to adjust their times for the longest duration of time. And not all of them are successful. Yes, there is a little bit of sleep restriction, which means they are naturally sleep deprived on a daily basis. That works again on a daily basis at nighttime, helping them sleep a little earlier. But when you add all these extracurriculars and their homeworks and their assignments, that really squeezes a teenager's sleep time into less than six or seven hours sometimes. So these teenagers are really under a lot of stress of school. And on top of that, they are sleep deprived. And on top of everything else, when they ask for help, or first of all, they're afraid to ask. Not, I shouldn't say afraid, but they don't even know that this is something that they could ask for help for. Uh, for sleep, for something as little as sleep, because the moment they say something, a natural reaction of not only their parents, but physicians is, oh, you must be on your phone. You, you need to stay away from your phone. That's actually not the case. Phone is a very little piece of a, of a big problem here. It's, the, it's just their natural delayed sleep time combined with the school timings, combined with their burden of schoolwork, uh, it's a combined effect. 
So children in this day and age, in, in this day and age, especially teenagers, are chronically sleep deprived. And I'm yet to see a teenager who gets more than eight hours of sleep. They don't just they just do not exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And so they all get little sleep. However, one point that I make with every patient, and it's a surprise or a news to most of them, and I'm not surprised that it's a surprise to them, <laughs> is how we catch up on, on lost sleep. The concept of sleep debt. I think we all need to include this as a subject or at least one period in a year, in the entire year, in the first week of school, college, or every level of education where they need to learn how sleep works, how important it is for brain function, what sleep debt means, and how we catch up on sleep. I think that'll make a lot of lives much easier. So sleep debt. So let's say we have a teenager who needs um, eight to nine hours sleep per night naturally, although they need a little bit more than that. But let's, for this example, let's, let's say nine hours. But what they are getting is seven hours. So five days of seven hours of sleep, now they have accumulated 10 hours of sleep debt, which means they're going to be very tired, very sleep deprived by Friday. Now the weekend comes along. And naturally, there's a lot of pressure to have fun over the weekend because we have just worked so hard during the weekdays and now it's our time. And yes, they stay up a little late. This is where I think things need to change, not where they go a little late, where they should be allowed to sleep in. When I see that a child is not able to sleep in, either because of some practice or some games or some other extracurricular, those are the children who are at higher risk for any complication from sleep deprivation. It could be excessive fatigue, could be anxiety, could be more migraine headaches. In a child with epilepsy, they could have more breakthrough seizures. In a child with depression, could have accumulating um, negative thoughts and accumulating symptoms or severity of depression. It's just this is a very critical time on the mornings on Saturday and Sunday mornings. It's a very critical time for this child to catch up on their sleep because technically those 10 hours of sleep debt can be paid back by sleeping two nights of 11 to 12 hours of sleep. It resets the whole system. They start afresh on Monday morning. Even if they're up late on the weekends, allow them to sleep in and they will catch up. That's how brain works. That's how the sleep debt system works. It's not a 10 hour and you pay back with 10 hours. We just need two two nights of longer sleep. Longer sleep is defined as your natural sleep plus one to two hours. So a child who needs seven to eight or eight to nine, now they need about 10 to 11. So that's how you pay back sleep debt. And multiple studies have shown that on the third night or the third day, you start afresh. Your IQ is up. Your fatigue level is low. All the signs of sleep deprivation, which are measured in terms of how many careless mistakes you do, that's how they measure sleepiness during the day. They make you take a test, like a simulated driving test, and they count the number of errors you do. Those errors go down uh, with just two nights of catch-up sleep. So that's how you pay back sleep debt. Then the whole concept of sleep deprivation, what happens 
with sleep deprivation. Children need to know that. Children's parents need to know that. And we all as parents are also sleep deprived to some extent ourselves. And what happens with sleep deprivation is important to understand because it will explain a lot of things that may happen in life during the day that we may not realize. For example, a child may have a hard time reacting to stressful situations. A child who has ADHD, their medication for ADHD seemingly is not as effective now because part of the medication is now working on keeping the child awake. And the medicine needed to make them focused can't even function because medications require a well-rested brain to make them focused. Now the medicine is just keeping them awake. And same is true for headaches. Children who are brought in for headaches many times, and I can actually tell you about maybe 80% of times, it all comes down to Saturday and Sunday mornings. And they have a accumulated sleep debt. Their headaches, their migraine headaches, are a pure consequence of sleep deprivation. Besides some other minor factors, the major factor is sleep deprivation. If they can somehow understand the concept of sleep debt and pay it back the right way, and they have something going on in the mornings. It's either a practice or there's a parent who is into disciplining children and telling them that in this house you wake up at a certain time, which is fine, but give that child a little bit of time, a window to catch up on the sleep and because it's a necessity. It's a biological necessity in the absence of which they're, they will be in a perpetual cycle of sleep deprivation, never to catch up. It affects their school grades. It affects their feelings and how they feel about different things, including including their grades. So it's a, it's a vicious cycle. It's an ongoing process. Um, they are perpetually sleep deprived. We as humans now are more sleep deprived than we ever were. And yes, technology plays a role. I'm not going to downplay that. It, it does. But we all know that. I'm just mentioning things that we, many of us may not know. So I'm bringing that to light. But obviously, phones. Phones have to be put away in the evening, especially for a child. Uh, two hours before bedtime, they should be uh, out of a child's reach. Children should be, uh, how should I put it? Involved in activities that do not involve a light-emitting toy. Because it's not just the activity on the phone that is linked with dopamine and et cetera, et cetera. We all know that. I'm talking about just the biological effect of this LED light on sleep-wake rhythm. Now, the days are going to be shorter uh, starting September 23rd. And from there, uh, this, this nighttime effect of these devices is going to get stronger because brain is very much dependent on exposure to light in determining whether it's nighttime or daytime. Brain is a very classic and very old machine. It, it relies on very basic principles and very basic signals. So light, even if it's coming from a cell phone um, or a bulb, uh, it perceives it as the sun is still out. But the proximity of phone light to our eyes have a profound effect on it, especially the LED light. 
So when we put away our phones is the first time that the brain senses that the sun has just set. And then it starts to make melatonin in reaction to absence of light. By the time melatonin starts to work and it gets its peak, guess what? It's time to wake up now. So these children have a very hard time waking up in the morning because melatonin reached its peak at the time when they were actually supposed to wake up. So we can prevent that to a great extent by eliminating, again, light-emitting toys in the evening. That's the biological effect of uh, electronics. And obviously, every content on the phone is linked with stimulation to the brain. And that's not a good mix, uh, nighttime and high dopamine, because sleep is actually the opposite. Sleep is low dopamine and low epinephrine and low serotonin. But these devices are linked with all of the above. So that's the other reason to uh, to avoid them at nighttime. So that was my rant against electronics. I'm going to stop talking now. Well, I think that's, that's wonderful. I'm I'm so fascinated by this sleep debt thing. I was told in college in a psychology class, I believe, that you can't catch up on sleep and there's no such thing as catching up on sleep. And so now I'm like, oh, this makes me want to sleep in on the weekends. <laughs> I love that. Um, okay, well, I am so grateful that you came on today and we're willing to share all of your wisdom and knowledge with us. Is there anything else that we need to know in regards to our sleep, like when we should seek out help? for our kids sleep or are there any other signs or anything we could be looking for besides the obvious of like yawning and tiredness during the day and like falling asleep during the day? I see. I think just making ourselves familiar with the concept of sleep hygiene and making our children aware of the concept of sleep hygiene, because that's how I ask children if they know what sleep hygiene means And it's rare for a child to tell me that, yeah, they know what it is because nobody knows. There's there's a general lack of information about sleep and what to expect from sleep um, in children. So just to educate ourselves, maybe review these things or read these things online um, about sleep hygiene. There are multiple videos on this topic on YouTube, et cetera. There are educational videos. So making our children aware of what sleep hygiene is, one, two, making them aware of the concept of sleep debt and how it works and how they need to protect their sleep location, meaning the bed, meaning nothing else in the bed except sleep, no phone, uh, no TV, no electronic, nothing, even books. I know reading books at bedtime is considered soothing and all, but if you look at it, I've had children who read books that keep them up all night. So that defeats the purpose. So anything that really excites you should be avoided in the bed. It's okay to read books at nighttime, but not in the bed. Maybe a chair right next to the bed, that's perfectly fine. Because we need to condition ourselves and our children into taking and respecting bed as a place where reflexly, where you go is the most boring place in the house and you automatically fall asleep. We need to avoid all kinds of stimulations in the bed. 
So that's the second thing um, about uh, educating children besides sleep hygiene, staying away from light in the last two hours. Uh, this could lead to a butterfly. If things are still not working out and so the child might be struggling with something which is unknown, in which case, yes, please reach out and I'll be happy to help. Or your pediatrician even would be happy to figure out what is it that the child might be going through in order to get a good night's sleep. Amazing. Well, thank you so much again. I'm going to share the links that you um, shared with me down in our show notes so everybody can find those and we can all become a little bit more educated. So thank you so much. You're welcome, Laura. Thank you for having me. Hey, I'm so glad that you joined us today. If this episode blessed you at all, would you mind leaving a review or sharing with others? This, as you know, will help other mamas find us and in turn will bless them. Hey, thanks so much for trusting us with your time today.